0: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Miklidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon, and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock. Is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Couldn't agree more, basically because I said it. So welcome anyway. Today's show, show, podcast, whatever you want to call it, features the two Andys. Andy Wood coming up in a minute, sharing some great stories of working with likes of Peter Gabriel and uh, Brian May from Queen and stuff like that and there have been two parts because I like to keep the interviews to kind of, well, the podcast moments, so to speak to about 15 to 16, 17, 18 minutes and uh, both guests will be back in future podcasts but first of all, we'll go to Mr Andy Wood and he'll tell you a little bit about himself from himself
1: Hello there. My name is Andy Wood and um, my background is largely in animation, games, music and technology. And um, over quite a long career, there's been lots of overlaps in my life um, with music and music business and musicians, which have created quite a lot of moments of rock rocked for me. Um All sorts of different things. I mean, if I cast my memory back, I started playing the drums when I was 15 and we played in a lot of the northern clubs in the northwest of England, um, around Manchester. And at 15, kind of playing from 300 to 3,000 people is quite a... um, focused experience and something I enjoyed a great deal. And to be honest, um, my heart would have liked that to have gone further. But as many uh, successful and certainly non-successful um, musicians would testify, it's very, very hard to earn a living and there can be uh, other temptations along the way. So after a year of uh, trying to get somewhere, I did what a lot of people do and went to university um, and the, the hankering for music persisted so i set up a duo with a, a friend of mine a really good singer and, and guitarist again i was playing drums and doing a bit of rapping uh, um back, back then uh, in the 80s uh, and we recorded a single which we um did by working in a studio overnight and getting free studio time which a lot of people did and i think the moment that rocked there is with the band kick partners is uh, john peel a very famous uk um, bbc radio 1 DJ, somebody gave him a copy of our single, and he played it um, uh, to our our great excitement when we heard it. So that that was a special moment. And the track that was played after ours was called Planet Earth by uh, a band called Duran Duran. So that was their first airing at the same time as ours. I think they're still doing it. Our band, sadly, no more. They did get a session after I moved on on um, the John Peel show, which was great. And um, it was a great moment for, for us. I also remember actually being with a a, a friend of mine. Uh, we'd been for a drink and he would say, what is what is it like having your your single played on the radio? And I said, oh, it's one of the best moments of of my life. We were students at the time. I, th- I think we'd lit up a, a, a spliff to enjoy the moment, breathed it out on the cat who was just hanging on uh, arcane blinds at, at the very moment. But yeah, it was a real adrenaline shot. And at that time, we were in his car and the single came on again. So that that, that was a great experience to hear your own work um, while you're talking about it. In my case, it only happened once. Uh, and that meant after a, a few different things, I moved into the video games industry because it reminded me of the music industry and it's more formative years. And I thought some of the the passion and and knowledge that I had about music would help with video games. Uh, And it sure did. Um, I set up a promotion company that visited video game stores, and we had a number of guys and girls on the road who would build uh, window displays. And we got to work with and promote and sometimes develop over 50 number one games. So not 50 number one records, but 50 number one games, which back then was um, quite something. And, of course, that market now is bigger than the music industry, the film industry and TV industries put together. But I think I would have rather uh, it had been music from my point if you, we work with games like Mortal Kombat and FIFA Soccer and with companies like Activision and Sony and EA. So it was uh it was the next best thing for me. That said, we had a number of successes and uh I invested um some some of the, the money from those successes in um a record label. Um probably the greatest um success we had is with in the uk is with a singer called john otway who'd had a number one uh not number one sorry a hit nothing like a number one um in about 1977 which was called cool baby that's really free and a friend of our uh mine uh andy payne and i put put some money into um a record label and we galvanized uh john otway's fan base um with him at the steering wheel and the result of that is we got in the top 10 and got on top of the pops which was a big show in the UK at the time so I kind of got to top of the pops through different routes it was amazing probably the first ever internet campaign we got straight in at number nine and I think we were number 96 a week afterwards but going on top of the pops was was a great thing and actually got to meet um a pal of mine there, um, a guy, a, a, an immortal guy called Andy Rourke, who was a bass player in the Smiths, of course, really talented bass player. I, I always thought he played bass like writing songs with, within songs. Um, so it was good to be on top of the pops and hang out with somebody, uh, you know, and probably have too many beers. Uh, Yeah, thinking about Andy, sometimes we'd go and watch Manchester United at Old Trafford. I remember one time he'd grown his hair quite long and he wore shades a lot. And we were walking down um, Sir Matt Busby Way, the main road to Old Trafford. And and Andy has got a slight Manchester gait, rocking... um, to left and right a little bit. And I can remember some some idiot pointing out and going, who do you think you are? Do you think you're in Oasis? And I was thinking, if only you knew, that is one of the best bass players that's ever walked the planet. Andy w- was um, involved with me um, with a live venue that I put um, some investment into. That is a really good way to to lo- lose money. So I had help um, with PR from Andy and also uh, Peter Hook, uh, who we know well um, who introduced me to all sorts of things um, and also Manny uh, who's bass player in uh, or was in um, Primal screen and the Stone Roses uh, so it was great to get to know the, those fabulous and uh, t- talented guys in fact I used to go on holiday on occasion with um, with with Hooky because they bought a place in Mallorca new, new one that, that I had um, and as as as, as Life deals you certain cars. We, we lost touch over the years, but one thing I'm involved in today is that we um, that I introduce. I do the emceeing at a festival called Witchwood in Cheltenham in the UK, um, and that, that they have bands like Ash there and um, uh, uh, Sophie ellis bexter and um, uh, Deacon Blue, and many many others. Human League and Hookie um, Hookie played there last year, and I thought this is an opportunity to kind of say over a microphone you know what i think of this guy and how much i enjoyed his company and how much i rate him as a uh, a musician and um, as an individual so i've got this script prepared in my head just about and i'd introduced tons of bands the day before and that day all ready to go and the cordless mic fails so i never got to say uh, what I wanted to say in terms of him being Mr. Manchester and uh, and so on. did manage to give him a hug at the end on stage. But, yeah, after all that build-up, I never got to introduce him at all. One of the games we put out, we were um, very fortunate to have the music um, composed by Brian May, the guitarist from Queen, of course, or Sir Brian May, as he is now. And uh, that resulted in a lot of uh, moments at rock, if you like, moments we will rock you. Um, Uh, And on the subject of that, uh, one time uh, Brian was working on a a, a track for the game and um, he came and stayed at my place in in Manchester because sadly his drummer at the time, Cozy Powell, had um, died in a car crash and there was a a celebration for the life of Cozy Powell in a place called Buxton uh, in Cheshire. And so Brian stayed with us and I was driving him over to the gig with um my eldest son uh Tom who would be about 10 or 12 then Brian was asking Tom what he liked and he really liked things like South Park and he said, he said do you know any of my songs and Tom said oh, I really really like We Will Rock You and Brian said I wasn't going to play that one but I tell you what I'll play it for you and he did and um I can remember him doing a big rock guitar salute in the in the, the, the just before the solo and putting his arm in in the air and pointing at Tom, which is certainly a moment that rocked for for Tom uh, uh, as well as me. The the, the other thing um, with Brian is he was working on a composition for our game, and I was at um, a uh, a conference in Chicago, and the phone in my hotel rang and it was brian may now that's quite something when the phone goes and it's brian may but more than that he said i've written this this track andy um for the game what do you think and he played it me down the phone i mean that's really quite remarkable probably didn't help that when he asked me what i thought that i said i, th- I thought the guitar was a bit discordant and that the um the drums could be a bit different um but the guitar stayed and the drums stayed and uh that was definitely for the better. The drummer, by the way, on that track, one of his first sessions was a young girl, Taylor Hawkins. This is after Freddie had gone, um, and Queen, Queen did a number of gigs with Paul Rogers. So it was um, uh, promoted as Queen and Paul Rogers. And my three sons and I, two of them being under ten, 10, were invited to go and attend one of the gigs and then see Brian afterwards as we'd done this work together. And he, this was in Cardiff, and he got us really, really good seats where we have got a great view of the stage. And possibly, I'll never know the answer to this. He got a really good view of us. Brian May, obviously, is you know one of the world's greatest guitarists, if if not the greatest, and is also celebrated in uh, live concerts for um, elongated guitar solos, sometimes ten to fifteen minutes. As I said, we were right as far as I could tell in his view. One of my kids fell asleep in the guitar (laughs) solo. And if you're listening, Brian, Connor is nearly 30 now and he's still sorry about that. But not as sorry as his younger brother, because we went um, backstage afterwards to catch up and Backstage is often sort of put forward as um, a really glamorous area. In most places I've been, it isn't. It's functional, much like a canteen. We were sat with Brian, and uh, I I think Connor, trying to make up for falling asleep, although we didn't mention anything, um, was asking Brian about how to play music. Connor was an aspiring violinist at the time, and Brian gave him some great advice. He said... um, Well, the best thing is to fall in love with your instrument, which I thought was a great thing. My youngest son, Ben, went off and found a chocolate machine, hot chocolate machine, got himself a hot chocolate, came back, plonked it on the table. And um, just after Brian had imparted those gems of wisdom, spilt the hot chocolate on the guitarist of Queen. So I said, Ben, you better go and find something to, to clear that up with. Brian, as always, was really dignified and um, uh, gentle about the whole thing and, you know, didn't make it first. Ben disappears for a while, and Connor says, we're still chatty away. Oh, no, I said, where's Ben? He's been ages. And Connor said, Ben is over there. And it was one of the moments when the entire room went quiet. Ben is over there with a condom. I don't know if I've ever been so embarrassed in all my thought all, all this room, looking at this kid holding um, a condom. So, as the newspapers say, at that point we uh, made our excuses and 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 left. When Brian stayed at our house, his road manager Pete Malindrome, stayed a night longer. And in those days, that particular house had a safe. Brian elected to leave the Red Special, the guitar he made with his dad, which is on everything he's ever played, played virtually every Queen concert. Probably the most priceless instrument guitar in the world ever because the guitarist himself made it. He elected to leave it at our house. Now, I didn't feel comfortable about um, that guitar being in our safe. So what I decided to do was to take it to bed with me. That's all great, well and good, but of course you don't sleep. It's and You're entrusted with, as I say, probably the most priceless music instrument in the world. So what do you do? You sit up and you play it all night. So I reckon I've put as many hours in on the uh, Red Special as most people other than uh, Brian and, uh, and Pete, the manager. But yeah, that is a moment that rocks. You rock yourself playing guitar of um, you know, one of the best players in the world who made it. Um, Himself. One of the other things that I did to do with um, in- interactive um, experiences w- was to help launch a product for the musician Peter Gabriel. And that led to many things where I think I worked with Peter for about 10 years. We worked on um, a really clever application that turns um text into animation. So if I was saying, Tony, I'll meet you down the pub at seven o'clock at the King's Head, I'd type that and uh, you would get an animation of a little stick man with my head on, embracing a stick man with your head on, with a clock that says seven o'clock outside uh the named venue, uh, very much ahead of its time. But that that's Peter, you know, he's well known for being a philanthropist, a musician. Caring and committed to, to uh, global issues of, of oppression. And so, but he's quite a technologist and inventor. Uh, that's what I got to work with with him. I was also on the, the board of his music festival, Womad, um, had many experiences. So I remember one time trying to get more visual imagery for this project we were working on. So Peter um, took me in a black cab from where he lives in, in Notting Hill when he's in London, over to meet a great artist called Sir Peter Blake. Uh, Sir Peter Blake is very famous for um, lots of calligraphy-style art, cut and paste. He did the album cover Stanley Road for Paul Weller, but the one he's absolutely celebrated for is Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles. So we get to meet this man at his studio, which was um, a hell of a thing in itself. And we go in and <laughs> first thing Peter Blake does is offer to make a cup of tea, which only took him 45 minutes to get round to. But the first thing he says to Peter Gabriel is, are you still in the band? Peter says, what band? Genesis. Uh, you know, this is maybe five years ago. Peter said, yeah, that was my school band. I left in 1972. <laughs> oh, all <laughs> oh, right. So Peter Blake, um, not really knowing he was talking to one of the greatest solo uh, musicians of all time. Not that it mattered. I mean, Peter was very gentle and Peter Blake was very, very charming and full of really constructive ideas. This isn't my moment that rocks, but it's pretty cool when uh, you get in the cab back and Peter says, Peter Gabriel says, I've I've got to go now. I'm going to a dinner tonight with Nelson Mandela.
0: Wonderful stuff. Oh, how I love hearing these stories. That was Andy Wood, and there'll be more from Andy Wood in weeks to come. Uh, After this, you will hear Andy Spinoza talking about his wonderful book, Unspun, which is about Manchester music and Manchester culture. And um, as it's my hometown, it was fascinating to hear. And so many things that I didn't know. Back shortly. You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. This is part of the wonderful Pantheon Media group of podcasts.
3: Hi, my name's Andy Spinoza, um, and I suppose my... Especially subject on TV quiz mastermind in the UK would be Manchester City Centre from 1979 until today because I um, came to London uh, came from London to Manchester as a a student uh, when I was 18 and a few years later set up a magazine in Manchester called City Life, a kind of a what's on um, an arts magazine um, which which ran in various guises for 15 years, but over a 40 year career in journalism pr um and media i've uh, run that magazine i've been uh, a gossip columnist for the local newspaper uh, and i've i've run pr campaigns for um um all kinds of uh, manchester based uh, businesses and organisations um which i gave up doing in um uh when when covid pandemic hit i closed my pr agency and i wrote a book called manchester unspun um <clears throat> subtitled pop property and power in the original modern city and it's an account really of of the manchester uh, the how the manchester that i um came across uh in 1979 how it's uh, transformed itself Over four decades, and the part that music culture and popular culture uh, played in that uh, amazing, extraordinary turnaround that we see today with skyscrapers um, zooming up uh, all all across Manchester. And uh, and I believe there's a um, a figure of 75,000 residents in the city centre and a a further quarter of a million residents around the centre. And this is a centre that literally had maybe 500 people living in it In, in when I arrived in the
0: late 70s. It's funny because I, I remember when I started selling records in 1974 and I was calling on shops in the outskirts like Pandemonium Records and I looked at, yeah. some, I looked at some photos the other week and, uh, you know, my van was parked outside the shop and on the other side of the road they'd knocked a building down and it was just bricks. Manchester was a shithole. But I didn't see any of that. I was 20 and I'd just got a job in the music business.
3: I mean, when I came to Manchester in 79, there was dereliction pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, there was the city was a kind of victim of pitiless government policy, really. And these, what Americans would call, rust belt industries were just left to, to die away. Um, and it kind of felt like the world had just used Manchester up and, and thrown it away. But at night... It was like a vacant movie set. You know, it was quite a thrilling aesthetic experience to be partying in the dead zones because, you know, clubbers, students, artists were the only people who were there at night. And that was the the milieu that led to the setting up of the Hacienda um, nightclub and music venue in 1982 um, by uh, Factory Records and New Order, and um, my book has got this uh, preposterous sounding theory, really, that without that project and others that it inspired, that we wouldn't have the the um, shiny new sky- skyscraper Manchester of today um, because it kind of gave the kiss of life to a dying city centre. And, um, I mean, I remember going to the Hacienda um in the early in 1982, the year it opened, which was described as a post-industrial fantasy um, designed by uh, interior architect Ben Kelly, and it was for 1,500 people and more. Uh, if you were breaking some, um, you know, some rules to squeeze people in, but that really, rarely uh, happened because founder Tony Wilson <clears throat> said he was creating a cathedral for popular culture um because manchester deserved one and london and paris and new york had their their great uh, cathedrals as he called it but it only attracted such a tiny congregation maybe 3 4 500 people and um it was clearly uh something that was unsustainable financially but they did keep kept it going they kept it going through the royalties from Joy Division and New Order records, and um, New Order kept playing concerts there um, that, that brought the, the the audiences in to provide the income to keep the club open. And um, it was it, it was this was the era of of indie music, um, let's say of uh, New Order, uh, The Smiths, um, but it was only until. It was not until the late 80s when dance music started to be made by um, lots of uh, probably untutored uh, artists who could get uh, cheap technology and and use new techniques like uh, digital sampling and drum machines to change change the musical style. And really that was when the Hacienda came into its own. It was almost like complete turnaround because from this sort of black and white, this kind of monochrome culture of, uh, of long max and, um uh, moody expressions. Uh, it was what, like we changed into day glow, mad Chester with uh, completely different clothing styles, baggy jeans, uh, baggy, um, everything really. <laughs> the, even the, the sound was called baggy. Um, and there was a drug behind the ecstasy, Um, the place was packed. There was probably 2,000 people in there, three, four nights a week, and a complete cultural turnaround. It was for the owners, it was kind of weird because it was like the gods of pop culture had smiled upon the hacienda, and suddenly it was full. Although it did bring its own <clears throat> problems, financial, because that one was buying alcohol and um, just water. Um, because most people were were high on illegal drugs, and secondly, the legal drug trade made the place an absolute carnival of crime. It was a it was a crime scene um, which became notorious, certainly in the UK media. And um, my book sees as a very key pivotal moment um, the fact that the police wanted to close it down and um, and take the licence away. And what did the City Council leadership do? They had seen how the club had made Manchester um, interesting as a place worldwide. There'd been a US magazine Newsweek front cover story in the, uh, I think, 1990. And what did they do? They asked the police, they lobbied the police, they asked the MP, in fact... Member of Parliament for Manchester to write to the police and the magistrates lobbying for the Hacienda to stay open. And the Hacienda did, because they could see that it was a um, very important location for the new economies that were com- coming in of tourism, of leisure and of media profile. Um, and so <clears throat> this was a, a key moment in, the, in, this, um, in this process that I uh, examine in the book. I think Manchester in the in the early 80s, when you when you started, you know, your, your record promotions agency and I started City Life, it was like um, well, there were two things going on. It was like a blank slate in that we could create, you know, with no experience and just kind of enthusiasm and entrepreneurship, even though we didn't know we were entrepreneurs because no one called us that in the, in those days. Um there was that going on, but there was some kind of an infrastructure, wasn't there? Because Manchester um, was home to Granada Television, which is an extraordinary television uh, company in in the UK. Um, there was the a big newspaper, the Manchester Evening News, biggest selling regional um, evening evening paper in the country, and there was a, there was enough. And because of its sort of three million, maybe two point seven million population. Um, outside London it's the biggest uh, conurbation so there was some kind of um, framework that we could work within and I think you know today Manchester is full of magazines and agencies and all kinds of media companies but you know back in the day it wasn't a lot going on and we you know the kind of um, organisations we set up were you know sh- showed the way for some of the some of the things that are going on today I'd like to think that I've revealed um, quite a few things that um, people don't really know about Manchester so um, for instance um, a lot of people feel that maybe Oasis are the quintessential authentic Manx they talk the talk they walk with a swagger um, actually, They've been, lived in London as soon as they could get out of Manchester. They went south. Um, they've not invested any of their money in Manchester. And my book points out that someone who is probably regarded as a rather uncool by um, younger generations uh, compared to o- Oasis uh, is Mick Hucknell and Simply Red. And, um, you know, Mick Hucknell, who's regarded as this uncool guy, actually invested. Um, in Manchester City Centre, and his and his partners' achievements in um, in taking old buildings and bringing them into new uses uh, is one of the lesser-known uh, <coughs> facts of uh, of Manchester's regeneration. So, for instance, um, Huntnell, um his money went into um, a bar called Barsa, but also <clears throat> a lovely hotel the Malmeson Hotel, which um, which was a falling down building uh, opposite Piccadilly Station and a whole range of bars and other leisure facilities. And, you know, this was something that he uh, and his partners, you know, did with great civic pride great enthusiasm. But I had a relationship, you know, with them. And I going back to the days before, um, <clears throat> Mick had a, record, a recording contract. And uh, we worked very closely at City Life magazine with his manager Elliot Rashman, um who was who was running the uh, Manchester Polytechnic Socials, I think when he when he met um, Mick Huckman and saw him perform and <clears throat> City Life as a magazine promoted uh, gigs, promoted young artists, and Elliot suggested to us that we could um, City Life could promote uh, a gig by simply Red who were looking for a record contract. And they this was at the um Manchester Tropicana, now long um, you know, long demolished building, um, but a, a very evocative place because it had this tacky, slightly tacky, slightly quote Tarantino-esque um um environment of plastic palm trees and a sort of a um fake tropical paradise. And that was the kind of staging um that uh, Simply Red took 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 on um, I think in late 1987, and um, <laughs> we must be the only promoters to have ever lost money on a Simply Red gig because there were about seventy record company executives on the guest list, and um, I'm happy to say that that um, that concert did wow the assembled reps of the music business and from that uh from that gig uh came their record deal so uh, we're delighted i'm delighted that we played such a key role in uh in, in mick and simply red's um career but uh certainly it's not one that uh that, <laughs> that i that we made any money from
0: no, but it was amazing because that there's a there's a common synergy there. And I'll I'll finish it off in a way and um and share it in one of my stories. Obviously it was your gig, but Simon yeah. Potts, who was in who's running Electra Records, was staying with me that night and he wanted to, he said, I'm gonna see a band. I said, Do you wanna come? I said, I don't want to go out Saturday night. I think it was Saturday night. I said, It's raining or whatever, you know. So I was making excuses. Um and I relented and I came with him. And um it was interesting because they got offered a lot more money. Than um, than Simon was offering him and stuff, so it'll be interesting to have a different side of the story because I'm going to Simon's been in Hawaii for like thirty years or something. I'm going to bring him yeah. on moments that rock, and I'm going to have him finish that bit off, and I'll send it you.
3: I, I think I'm pretty sure because I put this in the book because I um I've, I read there are some very interesting books on Hartnell. I'm pretty sure that the deal they took was one that was an artist development. Deal, i.e., it wasn't just a huge whack of money up front. It was more about we're going to work with you over the long term. And it's less money up front, but it's more money if we do things right and do things well, which is exactly what
0: happened. Wonderful to listen to. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Stories from Manchester, from Old and Manchester of You, which of course includes the bands, uh, which are far too many to mention. And before that, Andy Wood with some great stories. Both of those guests, both of those Andys, will be back in future weeks because what I like to do is keep the uh, content kind of 15 or so minutes apiece and then uh, what's left on the cutting room floor comes back in uh, future episodes. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael on the Pantheon Media Group of Podcasts. Stay tuned, subscribe, and please come back for more. See you next time.